So we know there was a lot of a lot of listenership to it. The kids in Ballard High have been retweeting it, and then they took the last episode and they put it up on YouTube. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. I'm Paul Riesmandel. Hello, everybody. It's Eric Klein, Radio Surviving with you today. And today, we've got a bunch of fun stuff to share with you. At the beginning of December, Eric and I took a field trip, a Radio Survivor field trip up to Seattle, Washington. We went to PodCon. I really enjoyed myself at a podcast conference. Yes. It was remarkable and really stands out, I think, in podcasting in general. We'll get to more of that, why we're so excited about it, but I think it really represents some fresh and interesting energy in and around podcasting. Thank you for taking me, Paul. And we were then able to go to a launch party for a low-power FM station also in the city of Seattle, thanks to our friend Sabrina Roach, who's a doer with Brown Paper Tickets, who focuses on things like low-power FM. She was instrumental in helping uh, eight or so stations in the Puget Sound area of uh, Washington State to get on the air, and this is the last one. Yeah. KBFG. And so we were able to attend and get some tape. Am I speaking out of school, Paul, if I say that the density of low power FM in that Seattle uh, metro region is uh, is really something? It's remarkable. It I don't want to say it's the number one thing. I don't know the facts around that, but it really is. Uh, there's a lot of low power FM radio stations in the Seattle Region. Yes, there's without a doubt it is remarkable, and it is due in in, in some part in no small part, yeah, to uh, Sabrina Roach's hard work in in helping to play a, a role in organizing and coordinating, providing and and helping stations work with each other and help each other, mm-hmm. right? Strengthening so, the communities of these low power FM community stations, all these neighborhood radio stations. You can't hear all of them at once. You can't just spin your dial and listen to every station in Seattle, but each neighborhood or many now neighborhoods have their own low power FM station up there. So we saw one of the uh, final radio stations. As far as I know, the last one to go on the air, KBFG in the Ballard neighborhood north of downtown. And what a wonderful contrast for us to go from this uh, podcasting conference in Seattle to this low power FM community neighborhood radio station celebrating its launch. What a nice way to to spend the weekend. Absolutely. Uh, But but first, we're going to dive into a little bit of news, uh, a story we've been tracking, network neutrality. Uh, Which the the which is not lasting much longer <laughs> the rules which preserve an open internet and allow you to get the content that you request on the internet at the same speed as everything else you get on the internet when you want it those rules are getting the axe and the reason we're going to talk about it a little bit today is because the final order the final text of the FCC's order getting rid of network neutrality was just released on Thursday January 4th now, this came three weeks after the decision. So there was a vote in which uh, three commissioners, all Republicans, voted to do away with net, net, network neutrality. And then they had to go back and do some cleanup work, basically, do some edits uh, and and uh, make sure that the actual text of the order might survive court challenges, although that's doubtable. Uh-huh. But it's 539 pages. 
So let me be honest to say I have not read all 539 pages. We need to get someone who order. has read. And as of today, <laughs> I was unable to do that because we're going, we're recording here on the 5th of January. Busy. That person is busy reading. Yes. I know Christopher Terry, our friend, the professor at uh, University of Minnesota, is busy this with is, his red if highlighter. If you don't mind me wasting one moment to, to talk a little bit about how the sausage is made in media, this is something I'm obsessed with, uh, with my limited experience, but experience nonetheless making news radio uh, in the past that anyone who's ready to talk about a news story the moment that news story is fresh knows a whole lot less than the person who's busy trying to find out what the story is yeah and that's the contradiction yeah that is the contradiction of media in 20 uh, whatever especially with the cable television channels that never stop talking uh, when did those people ever find out what to say <laughs> it is a question uh so now that uh, this piece of policy has been released from the FCC, from the FCC, network neutrality, uh, it becomes reality. Okay, when it hits the Federal Register, so the Federal Register is a publication of the federal government. Mm-hmm. A law, a policy must be published there in order okay. for it to take effect, and then there's also a window, a window before it actually takes effect. So, I mean, there's been a lot of talk, and it would all be sort of a conspiracy theory at this point, no facts, that uh, that your network provider, that uh, I'm going to name a name, that Comcast could now be slowing down your access to, uh, you know, to Netflix. Yes, it will be. It, it, can't start until 60 days after the publication in the Federal Register. Okay. So, so if it's happening now, it's illegal that it's that's happening That's correct. Now. And, and enforceable. And we don't, and just to be clear, we don't have any evidence that it's happening. Yes. Uh, so it's likely to be published in the Federal Register early in February. So that takes us into early April right. when these rules would go into effect. Why this Federal Register date is important is because as soon as it's published in the Federal Register, that is when you may challenge it in court. Oh, That is when groups may start filing their lawsuits. And they will probably be sitting there in front of of courtroom steps <laughs> with with their documents in hand ready to file them the minute the Federal Register hits the streets. Yeah, so network neutrality, uh, heading to the courts. Uh, one group that has stated that it will sue is the Internet Association. It's an internet uh, lobbying group, uh, industry group, that represents companies like Facebook, Google, and Netflix. Oh. You might have heard of them. Yeah. As well. Uh, the Internet Association. Yes. That's my new favorite. Uh, Indeed. Bugaboo. Bugbear. The, the one it. and only. The Internet Association. Facebook. Say the names again. Facebook, Google, Netflix, other groups as well, but those are the big three companies. Facebook, Google, uh, and Netflix. As well, public interest groups, including Free Press, Fight for the Future, Gosh. are probably going to Facebook, uh, file, YouTube, and Netflix file uh, the, suits as well. Are the new internet video titans, then. I'm going <laughs> to declare it here. Well, I mean, yes, they have been. Yeah, I know. There's nothing new there. They're the uh, ones who, who's... Uh, whose economic uh, model for revenue uh, off streaming video could be very threatened by having to pay extra. Right. 
to pay extra exactly to, 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 to take reach in, their audiences take in new costs and so just to kind of set everything Corporate up here, allies in the network neutrality oh fight it's with- always about <laughs> allies isn't it um just to set things up i want to remind everyone why this is important why we're talking about this here on a show about community media is because we know how much community media relies on the internet and it's not just about corporate and there aren't for, strong for us advocates here. i mean there are advocates uh, for public access tv there are advocates for community radio for public radio but they don't have the kind of pull that an a Netflix, a Google, or a Facebook have, on top of the fact that there's a lot of community media that's sort of unaffiliated. There's people making community media who, who aren't represented by a body like a National Federation of Community Broadcasters. Interesting that a lot of people that are making community media are using one of those, uh, uh, two of those channels that we just mentioned, that the Google channel and the Facebook channel right. are very important to community media organizations these days. Yeah, exactly. Or community media making individuals. But they may also be using uh, platforms that are outside of that. They yeah. may have their own websites and their own podcasts. more power to them podcasts. if they can figure out how to do that. Exactly, exactly. So here are the things. Here's the three things which once this net neutrality policy, this this loss of net neutrality goes into effect, here are three things that will become okay, that will become legal, that the FCC says you may do this as an internet service provider. One, you may block traffic. Block? Yes. 100% no traffic from a website that you yes. deem blockable. Yes. And there's no... The only what? caveat is that you must... Disclose this to your customers. Wow. So with disclosure, you may block content. So it's according to the FCC, any practice that blocks or otherwise prevents end user access to lawful content, applications, service, or non-harmful devices, including a description of what is blocked. So it wow. means you must say what, what is being blocked, but you may block it. Talk about stifling innovation because the devices being blocked is a big – Yes. That's huge because that just means that some – some things could connect to the internet and some things can't, depending exactly. on what your service provider per- says. And they're the ones who are handing out. They could turn phone off your, na- your nanny mom monitor, your nanny cam. Or they could say a, cer- a certain phone company. I mean, I'm just going to start making stuff up. It's dangerous, but that's, that's a good one. Okay, continue. I won't make anything else up. They may now throttle. Right. This is any practice that degrades or impairs access to lawful internet traffic on the basis of content, application, yeah. service, user, or use of a non harmful device. They must describe uh, what is being throttled, but so they have to disclose this. Sure. They have to tell you that but always they reminds may do me it. of the FCC hearing I went to uh, many years ago, where the discussion was around the throttling of content that was being uploaded to um, uh, those peer-to-peer file sharing networks BitTorrent, that were so yeah. yeah BitTorrent that was so popular back in the day for uh, pirating movies and and but also used content. to distribute legal and lawful yeah. content. But yeah, and. Uh, uh, one particular engineer type was able to prove that his Edison Reel audio was being throttled. Things that were in the public domain, therefore not being pirated, it was legal and legitimate to uh, distribute the audio from these. So uh, they'll be back to throttling uh, file sharing. Yes. And or we can uh, a third thing. There's many other things, but these are the top three in my view. The third thing that is now okay is affiliated prioritization. Okay. Which is any practice that directly or indirectly favors some traffic over other traffic. Sure. Affiliates. Including through use of techniques such as traffic shaping, prioritization, or resource reservation to benefit an affiliate. It'll be easier to watch HBO content on your AT&T iPhone than it will be to watch 
Netflix on your or ADT something like iPhone. that. Yeah, that that it some things will come more easily than others. You'll get a nice clean stream of uh, of Apple Music, but you'll get nothing when you try to go to Spotify. And so that will be okay. The only caveat is that the internet service provider needs to tell you it's happening. Okay. But enforcement does not fall under the FCC. Enforcement is being handed off to the Federal Trade Commission. Okay. Because it's basically being treated like commercial disclosure. It's basically being treated like if you bought a radio and it said includes AA batteries and there's no batteries. Right. If it's advertising something mm. that isn't delivered, it's under the uh, it's under the auspices of the Federal Trade Commission. So basically, what's happening is the FCC is taking its hands completely off sure. of any sort of uh, internet regulation and is saying if your ISP throttles or blocks things and doesn't disclose that it's doing so, you take it up with the Federal Trade Commission. Don't take it up with the FCC. Uh huh. So uh, in the future, if it goes through the courts successfully if, if it's defended but yeah. it becomes law in in, in the spring i mean oh, this is becoming so a judge would have to stay it for it to correct. not be caught. the we default don't know is yet. this is happening right the yeah. default is this is happening people will file suit uh organization will file suit they'll ask and, for and i'm sure they will ask for a stay right which means that the law doesn't go into effect until right. The end of the trial not at the beginning of but the trial. this is not yet known we can't say that it's going to happen there's a high likelihood, but but again, we're in a position in which this is going. This is set to become policy in about yeah. 90 days. Long story short, stay tuned to Radio Survivor. We'll be talking about network, network neutrality uh, in the year 2018. Now, lest you think the FCC is unanimous on this, there are two commissioners who are Democrats, um, one of whom is Commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel. Mm-hmm. She said, quote, in this document, the American public can see for themselves the damage done by this agency to Internet openness. Going forward, our broadband providers will have the power to block websites, throttle services and censor online content. This is not right. End quote. Yeah, the censorship portion is uh, that's a real exciting new wrinkle in uh, federal communications policies that yeah. it's really it's not an exaggeration. You know, censorship gets thrown around all the time, but, you know, blocking a website that you, for, for no... That, you don't have to justify yeah. it. You just have to explain that you're doing it. It's something. It's really something. Uh, Hasn't happened yet. Commissioner Mignon Clyburn... Don't jump to conclusions yet. ...is the longest-serving commissioner at mm-hmm. this time. She is a Democrat. Clyburn. Um, she wrote a very long, long rebuttal, but it starts, quote, I dissent... Mm-hmm. I dissent from this fiercely spun, legally lightweight, consumer harming, corporate enabling, destroying internet freedom order. Ooh, that's a good list of adjectives. I dissent because I'm among the millions outraged. Outraged because the FCC pulls its own teeth, abdicating responsibility to protect the nation's broadband consumers. Wow. End quote. Clyburn for chair. She is certainly not <laughs> not pulling any punches on that one. Because this is interesting to me because we know that back in uh, when Obama, Barack Obama, was president of the United States of America, and there was a Democrat at the head of the Federal Communications Commission, that Democrat um, was not always a fierce proponent of network neutrality. It was a... It was, it was a, a process. It was a process and that ended with a... Uh, reasonable protection with a very strong open internet order which this current fcc 
just voted to yeah. do away with. But I, but but now the the remaining Democrats seem a lot more uh, fierce in their defense of network neutrality. And I'd like to do a little reality check. So the internet service providers, companies like AT and T and Comcast, they they told the FCC they've made it their claim that network neutrality cost them the ability to continue to in, 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 put more money into infrastructure to make investments. Yeah. And that if they are freed from these heinous restrictions, they will invest more as well. Both these companies were strong proponents of the recent tax bill, which passed through Congress. And again, as proponents of the tax bill, they said by getting these tax incentives, by losing network neutrality, we will make, greater investments in our infrastructure, in our companies. I'm in favor of faster internet. This sounds good to me. So guess what they did? Do we not get faster internet? Comcast fired 500 employees at the end of the year. AT&T announced plans to lay off 4,600 employees. They cut jobs. Yes. But that is their investment. <laughs> we still, we still might get an. I'm just playing devil's advocate. I don't believe this. I don't know who's going to lay those, lay those Maybe pipes. Maybe they'll take who's all. Gonna, uh, yeah, <laughs> who's going to put down that fiber? But uh, sure, um, there is some action in Congress as well. So the Congress has uh, the Congressional Review Act, which allows it to step in and block the action of a. Uh, of a body of the government, like okay. the FCC or the EPA. So Senator Ed Markey, he's a Democrat of Massachusetts, has uh, introduced a resolution to use that to stop the FCC's disposal of network neutrality. Neat. Has any Republican? No. Yep. 29 senators from the Democratic caucus have well, signed Well, then I'm not on. impressed. I mean, you know. Yes. That's nice. It's a nice beginning. And this has been a bipartisan issue, though. It, it's important to note right. that that network neutrality is does not has not always strictly fallen down uh, through party lines. And in fact, uh, previous it's, it's even possible to imagine a Democrat being in favor of these telecom companies, oh, especially uh, when they're in their district yeah, and giving them a lot of profits. money. Yes, um, but fight for the future, so which polarized. is one of the organizations that's been doing a lot of uh, organizing around supporting network neutrality. They're starting a campaign, which is to try and hold many of con- congressional leaders responsible for their position on this and to do their best to challenge the ones who are anti-net neutrality in their own districts to see if we can't make this an election cycle, uh, a platform, uh, something in that, that is uh, prominent in the next election cycle in yeah. 2018. Yeah, it's um – the moment any uh, reasonable example escapes me, because I can only think of extremely unreasonable forms of right-wing media, but there are ways in which, the any you, d- despite your political affiliations, you want your media to, to get to you uh, without being impeded by a company who's, who doesn't have your best interests in mind, e- even if the media is... Um... Got to remember, Comcast owns NBC. <laughs> right. which, which is not a favorite amongst uh, right. amongst uh, many uh, in the right well, wing media. I could say uh, that YouTube uh, has a lot of uh, extremely successful right wing content. Yeah. That uh, it, it is a bipartisan issue. I think we can say that. So it, it continues. Uh, network neutrality going to the courts. The Congress Likely could going do to the something. Courts. Yes, but at the moment, and then you said it was what uh, mid February when. 
if there's no stay, there might start so, being no, it a is, throttle? It, is, uh, it must be published in the Federal Register, which is likely to happen early February. Then there's 60 days. Okay. So it'll be early April. Early April when you might start seeing legal blocking, throttling, or uh, yeah. fast lane. And my guess is internet. that Comcast, AT&T, Verizon, they're not stupid. They're not just going to throw switches. Yeah. I think it's going to be more of a slow, you know, though I, if I were them, and I'm, I hope I'm not giving them an ideas, but I doubt that I'm that smart, uh, they, would, they would hold off a while. Right. They give it a good 18, 24 months, let everything cool down, yeah. say, look, look, nothing happened, and then slowly start inserting things in when it's out of the public eye. That's probably what I would expect to see happen. Interestingly, chairman of the FCC, architect of this, Ajit Pai, was scheduled to be at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, which is coming up in just a few days. It's a, it's a huge industry convention where you know everyone who makes consumer electronics, computer industry, broadcasters, they're all there. It's a really big deal. And it's a big deal. The FCC chair. It's like a media event. It's these always days. there. Always oh, there and takes questions. He has canceled his appearance. I wonder why. Yeah. Probably busy. Probably busy. Probably, you know, he's got some birthday parties on his agenda. Uh, oh, you know, he's... He doesn't want his nice suits to get ruined by tomatoes being thrown. He, maybe maybe, maybe he's got to buff and shine his Reese's peanut butter cup mug. So that is Network Neutrality. And this is Radio Survivor, the yeah, sound of strong that. communities. Update. Thank you, Paul. Yes. Yeah, Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities where we talk about community media, college radio, non-commercial radio and uh, podcasting, po- podcasting and often network neutrality. And now public and public access and television. Public access television. Yeah, we're trying to we're trying to cover it all. My name is Paul Reesmanel, Eric Klein is with me here. And uh, if you would like to learn more about anything we talk about on the show, please go to our show notes radiosurvivor.com/podcast. This is episode number 124. And you can listen to us on the radio. You can find our affiliate list at our website, radiosurvivor.com. Great stations like X-Ray FM. If you are listening Portland, to us on Oregon. the radio, uh, uh, reach out and say hi. We yeah, want to know where you're hearing you. us from. Yeah, Send us an email, podcast at radiosurvivor.com or tweet at us. We're at Radio Survivor. We're on Facebook. We're easy to get a hold of. Um, as well, you can subscribe to the show as a podcast. Uh, please do so. Do so in iTunes. You can do so in Radio Public. Google Play, TuneIn, which we try to be very available, and you can learn more about that at radiosurvivor.com. So podcasting, let's 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 go forward. Oh, wow, what an this, experience. Report back. I thought so Paul and I went to PodCon last month in Seattle, Washington, and this was a large podcasting conference. The last time I had wrapped my head around what a podcasting conference could or would be, I I thought there was one I think in um in California at one point that was like uh podcast evangelism like get rich quick in the podcasting world it seemed to be the the main notes of of that conference and that's what I was expecting and instead we were treated uh to this enormous um experience that was focused around the enjoyment of fans of certain types of podcasting it was a lot like a comic con I think have you been to a Comic-Con? I have not, but this is what people <laughs> told me. Right. At a Comic-Con, you have 
the creators there. Yeah. Often doing panels, doing signings, doing Q and a, they also will have maybe some live shows of sorts. Yeah. Um, and then they also will have industry discussions where sure. they're not just talking about we had, the content itself, but talking about yeah. the making of and the industry. And at questions. PodCon in Seattle in 2017, we had, we had fans who were dressed in costumes. We had, uh, uh, panels hosted by uh, these podcasts that the fans were there to see, and we had some live podcasting uh, done in front of their audiences, studio audiences, in multiple rooms in this convention center. Yeah, and just to sort of, I think to to kind of set the frame here, it's important to to know that this was a kickstarted conference. Hmm. Uh, and so the creators were a guy named Hank Green. Then there was Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Craner, who are with. Welcome to Night Vale. They're the creators okay. of that show, as well as Travis and Justin McElroy, who come from the podcast My Brother, My Brother and Me, um, which is on the Maximum Fun Network. And so I think that this was created from the very start to be very fan oriented. Yeah. But understanding that people who listen to podcasts are often inspired to create podcasts. That's the fun. And let's give people, I want to give people a sense of what the shows were. So mm-hmm. uh, shows and creators who were there were Lore, Welcome to Night Vale. They didn't perform live, but they they were there in many panels. Um, there's a guy, Mike Hurley, who's got this network called Relay FM. It's very tech-oriented, but also pop culture. Um, Roman Mars from 99% Invisible. My Brother, My Brother and Me were there. Alice Isn't Dead, Bad With Money. And many, many more shows were there. Uh, again, some live, some in Q&A. Uh, some in these, uh, I forget what they call it, but they they would put two podcasters together. Yeah, the podcast mashups. Podcast mashups. But mashup. that's not what they called them. They called them something, something like that. And, you know, it was podcasting. It was nearby. So we went. And, you know, I'll have to admit, I didn't do a ton of research before deciding that, that we would go. And, you know, got kind of a, a read on it. But was pleasantly and amazingly surprised at the vibrancy of the fandom and the creatordom around much of this fictional podcasting. Yeah. Paul and I were sort of swept up in the enthusiasm of the fans of these uh, uh, radio dramas. That's what I am going to yeah, call yeah, them. Yeah, absolutely. Radio dramas in podcast land. Um, there clearly was a huge audience for them that also were, um, I just saw, I sat next to, I chatted with, I saw so many people with um, ambitions to author their own radio dramas be, because of the work that they were enjoying at, from these podcasts. Um, all these Welcome to the Night Vale spinoffs. Um, there's there some other shows that uh, I learned about for the first time. I guess I don't need to name drop all of them. Just all these all these uh, radio drama podcasts. Yeah, and some of these- to be very- uh, Podcasts are are comedy. You know, it's not everything is is, is necessarily a drama, but many are scripted or scripted right. of a sort, like there lore. You go. Radio drama is a is a weird. It's almost hole. too specific, right? Because lore is a show which has now become a series on Amazon podcast theater, Amazon television, and it's mostly just uh, Aaron Mankey, the host, telling stories, but very well. Uh, lots of sound design, sure. you know, or or a show like Ninety Nine Percent Invisible. Yeah, well, Aaron Mankey's is also a storytelling show, yeah. but it's sort of telling you know real life stories. Yeah, if non- we will. Aaron Mankey's lore is, non-fiction, ba- is nonfiction yeah. based on stories from history. Yes, and so I think to see people sort of engaging with this type of storytelling, which isn't quite the same as your this American life or a lot of that kind of storytelling where you're asking kind of everyday people to tell their stories. They're, they're a little bit more 
narrative is maybe the right word. I don't I know even I know what the right word is. I would separate This American Life you out. Wouldn't. Okay. Because This American Life is doing radio journalism, and that's sure. what 99% Invisible is doing. But differently. 99% Invisible and This American Life are doing very similar okay. radio uh, that's, that's journalism. Fair. That's what, fair. What, um, but these fictional scripted shows are in another in another place. Yeah. And just to see the folks right dressed in costume, it was great to see how young the, the, the gathering was and diverse. It it was to, to put a fine point on it. It was not a room full of white guys around the age of 35. Um, yeah, and that Paul was and wonderful to see. We cool. felt old <laughs> and that, and it was a wonderful feeling to be around all these yeah. folks from a whole variety of apparent backgrounds and also, and people that were, and from around the, around the country and some people from outside the U S their enthusiasm for radio on the internet was sort of brand new, which was also very yeah. exciting. Yeah. Right. Like they had, they had, they had, they, they had a college or high school experience with welcome to the night Vale that was now maturing into like, I want to make, I'm, I'm going to write this script. I'm going to cast this show. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to find out how to mix sound effects and music so that I can make something. It seemed like a, a real, like the next generation of, of creators was uh, enthusiastically enjoying this pod con in Seattle. And uh, for, for an old timer like me, who's been fantasizing about making radio now for over a decade, it was really cool that um, there's definitely audiences out there for so many new kinds of podcasting that... Uh, I'm excited for the future. And and the excitement bubbled over even to our bus ride home. <laughs> because on the bus ride home from Seattle on Sunday night, uh, it seemed as though two-thirds of the people on the bus were yeah. at PodCon coming home to Portland. I had a wonderful conversation with a young woman sitting next to me on the bus. A podcast producer. A podcast producer. As it would turn out. <laughs> who, who was producing a queer horror fiction podcast, uh, but they are radio dramas and they solicit radio dramas, which they then uh, produce um, in this particular genre and which is already shows are experiencing success in part because I think she's tapped into a very vibrant community yeah. that was just waiting for this kind of show to exist. But, you know, just a couple of years out of college, you know, not, you know, and, and diving headlong into into producing radio drama. It was really wonderful to experience. Um, I so thought it, we'd talk a little bit about some of, some of what we saw yeah, more specifically. Yeah. Well, I think that that does it for PodCon enthusiasm for radio drama. Yeah. We've definitely underlined that, but we also saw some panels that, uh, fascinatingly, uh, lined up a little bit more with the radio survivor ethos that we put forward, uh, ideas for future shows, dare I say, um, really cool panels that, that we here at radio survivor enjoyed. Yeah. So one of the first ones I saw was on podcasting and deaf accessibility. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's a wonderful presentation to have because it's not something I've heard mentioned much at all, accessibility and podcasts. And I think, you know, when, when we think about it, you know, there, there are probably two dimensions to that. I mean, obviously here we're going to talk directly about deaf accessibility, but there's also the recognition, I think, that, that people should have that podcasts are very appealing to people who are sight impaired as well. Mm -hmm. And to make sure that your shows are accessible, findable by people with sight impairments also who might be using, uh, reading technology and things like that. In addition to listening to your podcast, I didn't have a chance to attend this panel, Paul, you went and I, I split off and went somewhere else. So, uh, you'll, 
you'll reel me back in if this is off base. But to me, it also brings up the idea that podcasting is a valuable media that um, shouldn't just uh, shouldn't just be thought of as as so niche that other people don't need to know about it. So if it's like the way I think about this is that like certain podcasts are so popular and have enough resources that making transcripts available to non-hearing listeners, quote unquote, mm-hmm. to people in the audience who might not be able to enjoy listening to it is still a very valuable service to the community that we're creating work here in podcast universe and radio that um, has value beyond just uh, going into people's ears in one ear and out the other. Absolutely. And and the presenter, her name is Miri Josephs. Um, one of the things she noted is that you know, there are hearing impaired people who are way into your niche, whatever it happens to be. So just because it's a niche topic doesn't mean there aren't hearing impaired people who are very excited about yeah. what you're, what you're and dealing you don't want with. to exclude them uh, just by accident, yeah. just by assuming that they don't exist. Uh, I also, based on talking to you about the panel that you attended, realized that uh, being hearing impaired doesn't mean you can't hear anything. Right. So, I mean, <laughs> you're certainly not totally deaf. a transcript is the best thing you can do. And if you're talking about a scripted show, right, then you already pretty much have a transcript. You may just need to make it more uh, readable, make it something which is easier for someone to follow, maybe adding in cues if there's yeah. sound effects or there's uh, inflections, yeah. you know, That's something is read sarcastically or something like that to put in cues, you, you know, but even if it's, if it's uh, radio journalism, Often those pieces are also scripted. Yeah, ninety nine percent invisible is. They so have publishing a, that that script, script and transcript makes it accessible. But you're right; some people have hearing impairments, and often with the use of, uh, uh, you know, hearing aids, can listen to podcasts. I guess some hearing aids now have Bluetooth, so mm. they'll pair to your phone, and you can listen to podcasts that way. So you taught me, based on the panel, that there are ways that podcasters can keep that audience in mind. Yes, and people who can hear you, but uh, need uh, adaptive assistance technology to sort of uh, make it easier for them. To and that's you. where production value comes in. Ah. Having things be a consistent volume. Uh, speaking into microphones. Speaking into microphones. Not just uh, sharing one microphone in the middle of the room. <laughs> Minimizing background noise. Background noise is in particular. One thing which we do all the time, which we shouldn't do, is crosstalk, talking over each other. This one really broke my heart, Paul, when you told me that crosstalk is uh, ruining podcasts for some of the hearing impaired audience because, man, I love crosstalk. I love love talking over you when you get a good head of steam going and you're still going on and you've you've got 10 sentences in a row and I had something to say. I really prefer not interrupting you, but just sort of laying it underneath. Um, But I come from a family that talks over each other, and maybe not everyone wants to hear that. So I'll keep that in mind, listeners. I'll keep that in mind. (laughs) And another point is to mix into mono, not to do stereo. And this is particularly, I think, with regard to... Uh, you know, like just a simple spoken news and word public podcast. affairs. I, yeah, for me, news and public affairs, which is what we call everything that's not uh, radio drama, which is what we mean by <laughs> uh, podcasting that's not fictional. That's it's a mono world. Yeah, that because I come people from. may have very differential hearing; may only have one ear, which has residual hearing, or one ear may be better than yeah. the other ear. So yeah, don't don't pan so hard one guest to one ear and the other to the yeah, because you're not you might be ruining it for people. Yeah, and you should test. Test your show with a mono speaker somehow. Hmm. So even if you send out a, a stereo file, 
um, because maybe you have some stereo music, but you still mix everybody yeah, into it does the sound into nice. the center. Stereo uh, does sound nice, if you especially have with music. Two working ears, yes. Yeah, uh, but you want to make sure that it you can still understand it when it's mixed down to mono. A mono speaker to to listen to your show to check it out because yeah. there can be something called phase errors if uh, microphones are out of phase. They can cancel each other out when mixed down to mono. Wow. And you won't know it until you try to listen. We're talking about podcasting uh, for the hearing impaired, for thinking about podcasting. So, but definitely, Miri is someone I'm reaching out to. So we can, she can talk more and, and tell us more about uh, what we should think about with in terms of deaf accessibility. Her name is Miri Josephs. Miri Josephs, thank you so much for your contribution to PodCon. It was really exciting for us here at Radio Survivor. And there was other PodCon conferences that we saw, right? What else were we going to talk about before the end of the show? Well, you know, we we, we sort of talked a little bit about, uh, you know, journalism uh, and podcasting. And there was a panel called Balancing Facts and Art. Really great panel. Uh, if anyone ever gets a chance to see Roman Mars, uh, uh, what, what's the word? Moderate a panel at a podcasting conference. Don't miss it. Uh, Paul He's is a huge, very good yeah, at it. <laughs> Paul is a huge fan of the art of panel moderation. I've it's, seen he's so con- many yeah. terribly moderated panels and in I'll, my time. I'll toot your home, Paul. You do, you do a fairly good job moderating a panel when they give you a chance. And I've now noticed like, oh gosh, this person, God bless them. They are not doing such a hot they're, the they're Roman letting Mars a few things uh, slide between the cracks here. Of 99% invisible. Yeah. Excellent moderating. So we knew he was good at radio. Now we also know that he's good at panel moderation. Also on that panel were Aaron Mankey uh, from Lore and Ashley Ahern, who uh, works on a show called Terrestrial, uh, which is about climate change. Yeah, it's on my list of things to listen to. It's a NPR affiliate in Seattle, Washington, produces this uh, popular podcast on climate change that I I need to check out. And, And they are all artfully done journalistic yeah. podcast. I mean, I guess lore is more, uh, it's, it's sort of truthful but, nonfiction, but Aaron Menke is not allowed to lie. He's right. not allowed to make stuff up. He's allowed to, uh, story tell, but he's, the, he's telling real stories. The goal is to never make a thing up. Yeah. And, and so it was interesting to hear them talk about he had a different job than Roman Mars does. Indeed. But like Aaron Menke said, look, to keep the trail of breadcrumbs, some facts are not important. And Roman Mars emphasized that too, Yeah, that there's this there's this tendency sometimes, I think, to lean towards uh, overwhelming completeness, completeness as opposed to carefully carving out what it is you're trying to tell when you're trying to tell yeah. a story. Well, the luxury of writing out a script and, and keeping it the kind of thing that you learn in radio, like Roman Mars uh, did before his podcasting fame, uh, you only have a certain time frame to tell your story. Right. And so uh, we know also that the, the producer the producer of Terrestrial has the same ki- time constraints, and it could really, uh, it focuses the mind to have to script things Yeah, and with length. podcasting, because of the fact that there's nobody sitting over you with a red light ready to go off or ready to kill your microphone, it's easy to go two or three hours, in fact, w- without, it, without yeah. doing some self-editing. So that, that really, you know, and the way Roman Mars put it is, quote, important is the least important form of interesting, end quote. And the whole point there is that look for what's interesting. Often, and I I see this certainly in community radio all the time, there's a focus on, well, this is important. People need to know this. And that may be true, but how are you hooking them? How are you making them find it interesting? How do you make it so that they want to know this? And and if you know anything about 99% Invisible, the whole point of the show is that 
he investigates things that are sort of below the surface yeah. that, that may not in fact seem interesting on the surface, but he finds the story behind them that makes them interesting. And yeah. I think that that's an important thing to take away. Paul, we're going to run out of time soon here on Radio Survivor today. We also Do you want to say anything else about the fact panel? Yeah, I do. Uh, it's a great quote from Ashley Ahern. And she said, scientists think more information will turn people's minds. Right. This is, the, this is the climate change podcast. Yes. But the story matters. Yeah. Again, it's the framing, making it interesting. And that's, I think, probably what takes it into art, mm-hmm. is, is presenting a compelling story that is truthful, that contains everything it needs to have, but not more. And this is Radio Survivor. I'm Paul Riesmandel. With me is Eric Klein. Yeah. We're talking about PodCon, which happened in Seattle, December 9th and 10th. We have to wrap it up. 2017. But we also had a lot of fun at the uh, libraries and podcasting panel. I couldn't believe it. I thought they were eaves- these, these people must have been listening to uh, our 124 episodes of Radio Survivor that we've put out because we're always – Talking uh, from a place of uh, low information about libraries and podcasts and how we – wouldn't it be neat if they – or libraries and community radio. Like it always seems like these are two worlds that uh, if they're not already crossing over, they need to cross over more often. And they do in Vancouver, British Columbia where they have audio studios for use by the general public for podcasting, for recording bands, for yeah. recording any number of things. And they have hosted live podcasts in the library. Other things they pointed out is that libraries are your friends, especially if you're doing anything that requires research because right. your friendly librarians are there to but, help you. Oh my gosh, we were so happy to learn about what's going on in Vancouver, British Columbia, there in Canada, and uh, what what kind of podcasting resources they're making available to library users, which means everybody, anybody can make a podcast at the library. With, uh, a, with a library card. With a library card. You don't have to be a Canadian. Uh, just so exciting. So we're definitely going to come back. Yeah, they said that. Oh, really? Paul's giving me a face. You don't have to be Canadian to get a library card Wow, in, in Vancouver. Vancouver. So you, I guess you, if you just live across the... Yeah. If you like libraries enough to go <laughs> to Vancouver... And you live in Washington State and are willing to drive up to Vancouver. Yeah, and such a cool model. And we know that there are other libraries out there in the United States, for instance, that are supporting community podcasting, but not that many. And so that's a really exciting uh, topic that we're going to revisit in 2018. Uh, that's a promise. I can make this promise. Well, we go from downtown Seattle, where PodCon happened, up to the Ballard neighborhood, where we attended yeah, the mere lunch moments party. later. <laughs> it was it was a whirlwind day. Uh, we went to the lunch party for KBFGLP, which is serving the Ballard neighborhood of of Seattle, but their transmitter is so well sighted up on top of a hill on top of a relatively tall building that their little tiny signal goes all the way down through downtown Seattle. Yeah. So this was a low power FM radio station. One of the last ones going on the air there in Seattle, Washington, where there is a density of low power FM radio stations, uh, possibly uh, more there than anywhere else in the United States. That's why 2017 was a banner year for community radio. And we got to see one of the last ones going on there. Such an exciting contrast uh, for us to go from this PodCon uh, fan enthusiasm, this youthful uh, enthusiasm for new media, to go and find one last (laughs) terrestrial station that's also new, like a brand new station going on there, celebrating their launch. They had a... uh, high school jazz band playing. They were really good. They were really, really 
good. I was so happy to hear that jazz band and uh, and then to notice that they're, I knew they were young. I didn't know how young they were yeah. until I asked. So that was delightful. And that jazz band was playing live on the radio. And it was a live broadcast. Yeah. They interviewed uh, Eric and me on the air uh, during, during one break. We had uh, fun. I didn't expect that to happen. Yeah, we were talking with Pam Burton who is a founding member of the station. And we also had a chance to catch up with Jerry Russell, who's on the board of directors there and does a lot of the engineering work for KBFG. And we talked to Mackenzie Mackinich, who is in charge of programming and promotions there at the station. Yeah, let's take a listen to an interview that we did with them there in Ballard. We, it's, it's really been a, everybody just doing everything they possibly can to get the things done that needed to be done. And as much as we might have said, like, you know, Jerry obviously has got his specialties and Max got his and I've got mine, but it's really been such a group effort. And it's it's been very organic for the most part. It's worked very well. That's one of the things I really like about it. There was a lot of gaps because we had to sit around and wait for the FCC for months. And it turned out they lost our application. You know, at one wow. point, uh, Mike Weissman, have you met him? No. Um, he was really one of the movers and shakers behind getting uh, the LP licenses. Right. He was one of the attorneys. He was very excited at WTO when they started a whole media center here and they were doing all this amazing outreach, you know. He was one of our founding, you know, members. Helped us get going. And we all met at Eric's, in Eric's uh, high school class, his physics class. And every week talked about what we were going to do to make this thing happen. And we went on for months and waiting for the light, you know, for the FCC. How far back it. are these meetings? What, what Four year? years ago. So, you know, and then we did the application with the help of Mike Wiseman, who's an attorney. And we did the, we applied for a nonprofit. And we then waited and waited and waited, you know, and, and we actually. Shut down. Government shut down. Yeah. Delayed it by a couple of weeks, too. So. Exactly. Yeah, the window, the shutdown happened maybe a few days before the window was going to close. And we weren't sure what was going to happen. We didn't know if it was going to even open back up for us or if it was just going to be bypassed. So. so what was that vision? I mean, you know, so you, you heard about the opportunity to have a low-power FM. There was sort of, it sounds like there was latent need that people really felt it was needed. What was the vision? What were you thinking this station would be able to do? Well, one of the first things that... The guys said, when I walked in the room, they wanted to do, and again, we were at a high school, they wanted to do live basketball games. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, is that what we're going for here? <laughs> and then they started talking about students doing their music on the air. Well, that was pretty cool. And we started involving students. And we had, in fact, Eric had his students interviewing us, like you guys are doing, and we all talked about what it was we were going for. So, it was, you know, and it was just like dreaming, dreaming, dreaming for months. And then, you know, we did what we knew we needed to do, and then we had to wait. And then we had to wait. And then it was permits, and all, and, and, and of course, now we're already involved so with you the mean other. Like permitting locally for putting up the antenna and things like that, right? That was it. And we're talking about a large beach umbrella going up on a roof that's the size of a football field. But we had to get a permit, and we had to get in line with, if you've noticed in Seattle, there's a lot of building going on. So it was, it was like get in line and wait. And so that was another six months at some, you know. Meanwhile, we're meeting, but we, we, were, we were meeting with the other cohorts, the other public, the other LP stations in town. 
and we're all discussing, okay, should we go to the city council? Should we beg the mayor? Should we meet with our, you know, the city council people to convince them? Because at that point, we were talking about a permit that might cost us 10000 And we didn't, you know, there was, it was really hard to negotiate what was it, what was it actually going to be. But the idea that I was going to put up a beach-sized umbrella on a roof for $10,000 just seemed crazy. But then it kind of came back to us. We meet with all our council people. They're all saying, yeah, we really love this idea. This is great. And we keep talking. And we throw in the emergency broadcasting possibilities. So the fact that you would be here in the event of emergency and, and relay information. And Seattle is really big into this. They've already got a lot of plans. Well, so because, yeah, people are worrying about the big one. The, the, the big earthquake and tsunami at some point. Yeah, yeah. so we kept pulling that card out, and they kept, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, we should really do that. But then we still waited. And, then, of course, the permit issue, it turned out every radio station had a different issue, all of the ones we were working with. You know, one, one st- antenna's on a church steeple, you know, and, an, and another one is on um, at the Seattle University. They didn't seem to worry about money because, you know, they just, so they hired an architect and they hired an engineer and they, and we kept lowballing it as much as we could. So I'm wondering if someone could talk about why this neighborhood, why Ballard needed this station. What's going on in this part of town? Yeah, why does yeah why why have, why why have Ballard uh, have its own station? I mean, so you have stations all throughout, and often people think about radio stations being for a city, often or a whole metropolitan area, and here. Ballard, a wonderful neighborhood here in Seattle, gets its own station. Well, it's not necessarily just Ballard. I mean, it's it's Ballard, Fremont, Greenwood, Queen Anne. I mean, it's kind of just the north end. And there's other low-power stations in the area. You know, there's some down on the south end. There's some over on the east side. Um, so this is just kind of our opportunity to have one on the north end of Seattle. So, yeah. And, and, and why is that important? Why is it important for the north end to be represented in that way? I think there's a lot of very creative people that live here, which is something that we're learning as this process is starting to happen. And we're having people come out of the woodworks that, that are interested in radio and they're good at it and we're people that can host good shows. And there's uh, just a lot of talented music especially happens in this area, so that's part of it. And um, We're also exploding. I mean, if you look at this, this particular Bruce, right, we've got more breweries in... Um, Ballard, the restaurant that we're standing in right now, you're, you're referencing. Exactly. It's a brewery, right? And these have just exploded in the last five years where we've got, and I've heard numbers of, you know, more breweries per, per person, you know, and that's Ballard. It's, it's Ballard happening. And if you look around in the building that's going on, we're, and we, you know, there, there was an eff- emphasis by the mayor to stop building out in the hinterlands, in the farmlands. Let's increase the density inside. And it was Ballard, I think, that in many... It was the first area, and it's, go, it's going citywide now, where they started saying, okay, we'll start on Market Street and say you can now build you know, these multi-story apartment buildings and condos and the mixed use. And so that, that whole building thing has just totally exploded. So a lot of... There's just a you know, there, it change, major changes that are bringing all the things that you'd normally expect in terms of people's emotions and people needing to adjust to. So part of our agenda here is to talk about that, to give people an opportunity on the radio to talk about that. Our homeless problem is so huge. Again, for a lot of reasons that we have no power over, but just the idea that this is a place where homeless can come and be taken care of on some levels. 
and people are upset about that and people want to make a difference about that and so we it's another thing that I know we're going to be discussing we've got a we got a, a homeless um, village here right down the street where they have everybody has a little house and everybody has a solar panel on it and so they're a government planned homeless camp is this yeah, yeah. it's a state city okay. a city one and Nicholsville I think they call it but it's right there on Ballard, and it's you know it's one answer. It's not it's not a you know it's only a beginning. But there, it, homelessness is taken very seriously in this town. So Mackenzie Mackinich, uh, you, you're doing a lot around programming and promotions. Mm-hmm. So you're on the air now. Yeah. What's the programming like? What what are, what are you able to what are you able to broadcast here? So I mean we have. Um, Recorded concerts that were in local venues. We have spoken word pieces. We have some podcasts from different people around the area that have done political talks and, and different speeches, climate talks. Um, I have my own radio show that's on there. We have lots of people, that, um, several different radio shows now that have like music that they get updated every week. And those are just kind of the beginnings. Like we just had somebody reach out this week. They want to start doing a comedy show. And then we have another show that's coming soon down the pipeline. It'll be an all Spanish-speaking only show. So we're trying to, and then there's a lot more ideas that people have been coming with, to us lately of um, different shows that they want to try to do, and uh, and we're open to that. You know, I think eventually we would like to have, um, we want to have uh, political shows. We want to have you know climate issue shows. Um, more we ha- we do have what's called a poetry hour, but maybe a little more in depth with that, and maybe a little bit yeah. more. Um, You're saying that people are coming to you. I'm wondering how they know that the doors are open? How do they know that you want to hear from them? Uh, a lot of that's been just through some of our promotions. You know, we've done paid ads on Facebook and different things. Uh, we had a, a great article in My Ballard last week that came out. And what, what is My Ballard? It's a website that basically just promotes everything that happens in the Ballard area. And so they were on top of it and they wrote a great article and gosh, that came out last Sunday and then Monday morning our email account just started blowing up with people who were coming at us with ideas for shows and yeah. it was very, very interesting. So it's, it's getting fun. We are doing high school sports, so we're starting oh, you to broadcast got it. You, so, high school sports yeah. as well. That's wonderful. And how's how's that structured? I want to know more about. Well, I mean, last uh, the last game we did two weeks ago was the first time we'd ever done it. The announcers, it was the first time they ever done it. Who are, who are the announcers? Are they parents in the community? Uh, are they children? No, they are they are people in the community. They're involved in sports. So yeah. one of them is involved uh, with the YMCA as a sports uh-huh. as a sports person. That's wonderful. And um, they had never done it before. When I had listened to the broadcast, I thought these guys had 10 years experience doing the sports uh-huh. broadcasting. And I found out the next day that it was the first time That's they had ever even much. done it. Has so. there been any feedback on this live sports broadcasting yeah, of your high school teams? It's, it's been extremely positive. I mean, the coach is excited about it. The other coaches of other sports are excited. During the broadcast, we had people that were writing in uh, to us and letting us know where they were listening from. And I think I heard at least at least four or five dozen people net called out with their names and where they were listening from, and so we know there was a lot of a lot of listenership to it. The kids in Ballard High have been retweeting it, and then you know they've already took the last episode and they put it up on YouTube, and so um, yeah, the kids at Ballard High School seem to be pretty excited about it. So yeah, we're going to do that for every home game, basketball game, uh, men's varsity basketball this season. That's great. And are, are there any other plans to incorporate uh, high school students that aren't sports fans? or sports enthusiasts? Uh, not at the moment, but we're open to ideas. So, I mean, if somebody has an idea, contact us. We'll, that, I think that's one of the biggest things we can stress right now is we're open to ideas. Thank you so much, everyone. Very exciting. We're so glad to be here at uh, Peddler Brewing in the Ballard neighborhood of, of Seattle to celebrate 
the uh, launch of KBFG Low Power FM here at 107.3. 107.3 FM in the Ballard-ish area. Wonderful. Thank you all. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Pam Burton. She is a founding member of KBFG LP, the new Low Power FM station serving the Ballard neighborhood and much of Seattle, Washington. We also talked with Mackenzie McIninch who runs programming and promotions for the station and Jerry Russell, who's a board member and also does a lot of their engineering. Yeah. Congratulations to everybody there in their community. Uh, what's the radio call letters again? KBFG. KBFG on the air, newly on the air. We are so happy to be welcomed to their celebration of the launch of that low power FM radio station there in Ballard neighborhood radio, uh, in Seattle, Washington, where there's so many neighborhood radio stations, their 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 cup runneth over, and we just uh, we're so happy to get to have seen one little bit of this uh, sparkling world of new stations going on the air. And it was interesting to hear how the station came together in the high school. They met yeah. at the high school in what a classroom. A, what a great place to center a community around the public high school. And Pam told us after the interview how, you know, they really want to involve students. And she'd been talking to a high school writing teacher who suggested that uh, they might air student written pieces and have the students record them. And she's very enthusiastic about that. And even Mackenzie, one of the people we talk with, he got his start in high school radio in Cincinnati. So there's there's this nice thread of the high school being this place that kind of ties this community together. You know, I really had a light bulb go off when we were speaking to those folks who founded that radio station, uh, just regarding the fact that when you when you found a radio station instead of uh, starting a podcast, for instance, um, you want to bring people together in a way that you don't ask, you don't necessarily have to organize a community when you found a podcast. In fact, most people uh, just do something with one other person, right? And it's that's easy. But when you found a low power FM radio station, you have to bring together different groups of people. And I love the fact that Pam sort of had to swallow a difficult pill at one point that high school sports. Well, I'm not sure it was a difficult I know, pill. No, that was the wrong metaphor. Yeah. She had to accept the idea that members of her community were very enthusiastic about high school sports broadcasting when maybe that was not what was on her list of things to be excited about. And it turns out that, the, that those uh, live sports broadcasts have been very popular. Yeah. And it's like, that's what I love about community radio is that now you have to marry these communities together. And I think together we're a little bit, I mean, we're definitely something different than just a podcast. When, when high school sports broadcasters have to hang out in the same station as uh, lovers of high school literature. And it's a wonderful thing I love about college radio too, because college radio often also supports uh, collegiate sports, often the collegiate sports that don't get covered yeah. in the newspaper. Uh, they might cover softball. They might cover yeah. field hockey. And giving young people the chance to do broadcasting exactly. uh, to, to, to experiment in that uh, swimming pool is a real uh, boon to everybody. It's uh, That's what community radio, college radio, it's what it's here for. And uh, we're here celebrating it on Radio Survivor. Paul Reesmandel, thank you so much for celebrating this stuff with me on Radio Survivor today. My name is Eric Klein. What else do we need to tell listeners we before need, we go? Well, we'd love to hear from you. Is there a low-power FM station or community station in your life that you love, that you'd love us to know about? Drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And of course, you can get show notes and learn more about everything we talked about today at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number 124. We are a listener and reader supported enterprise. Anything you can do to help us 
financially to do what we do. We'd really appreciate it. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash support to learn more about that. And we are a podcast. We are a radio show. If you can't hear us on the radio, either because we're not on a station near you or because you don't, you're not there at the time, please subscribe to our podcast. Do it in iTunes. You can do it in Stitcher. You can do it in most major apps. That helps us out a lot when you subscribe. And plus, you never miss a show. Learn more at radiosurvivor.com. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, have a good week, everybody. <laughs>